LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Paul Kingsnorth, who joins us to discuss his work with the Dark Mountain Project. The project is a network of writers, artists and thinkers who have stopped believing the stories our civilization tells itself. They see that the world is entering an age of ecological collapse, material contraction and social and political unravelling and feel that our cultural responses should reflect this reality rather than denying it. The project grew out of a feeling that contemporary art and literature were failing to respond honestly or adequately to the scale of our entwined ecological, economic and social crises. They believe that writing and art have a crucial role to play in coming to terms with this reality and in questioning its foundations. Hello and welcome Paul and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, it's nice to be here. Now Paul, today we're going to talk about the Dark Mountain Project, something you've been involved with for several years. Just briefly tell listeners what it's all about. Um, the Dark Mountain Project is something that was founded in 2009. Initially, the idea was to bring together a group of writers to uh, honestly tackle the state of the world as we saw it. Um, it started my, by myself and a fellow writer called Dougald Hine. Um, and essentially, the motivation behind it was that we looked around us and we didn't see very much writing, uh, whether it was creative or, or non-fictional writing, that was really honestly looking at the state of the world today and doing it without being uh, polemical or, or, or sort of cliched or honest, if, effectively. We didn't see that there was any um, serious, honest writing that we could come across in the mainstream, and we wanted to provide a home for it. So really, we started off, um, as I say, trying to bring people together as a kind of experiment, and we wanted to know, I suppose, um, how many people agreed with us how many writers and activists and artists there were out there who might share this worldview now you published um i believe in 2009 a dark mountain manifesto which is really outlined and summarizes your position and outlook and uh, just a quote from early on in that actually uh, a quote from uh, ralph waldo emerson which was the end of the human race will be that it will eventually die of civilization now that might bring some people up short because they'll be thinking well that's the opposite, surely, of the civilizing process. You know, it isn't to kill things off. It's to it's the spread of peace and prosperity. That's what civilization is. But reflecting on that, I mean, from your perspective, given all the work you've been doing, have you caused uh, yourself to think differently about what civilization actually is when we get right down to it? Well, we called our manifesto Uncivilization, um, and that was a bit of a challenge to its readers and a bit of a challenge to us as well. Um, I felt at the time, and I still feel now, that most of the writing we see, most of the novels, most of the poetry, most of the stuff that kind of passes for a creative challenge is over-civilized. Uh, and what I mean by that is that it tends to be very urban, very metrocentric, very 
uh, centered on human needs and desires and achievements. And there's very little recognition of the fragility of our civilization and there's very little recognition of the world outside our civilization. Um, and if we take civilization to mean settled agricultural societies, um, societies with cities and towns and advanced transport links and all of the rest of the things that we take for granted. We can on the one hand look at those things from our small perspective and say well you know this is very nice isn't it if we happen to be one of the lucky middle class people in, in the rich parts of the world. On the other hand we can step outside that and we can say well if we look at this from the perspective of everything that lives on earth rather than just humanity and a fairly small portion of humanity at that we can see that it looks very very different indeed the thing that we call civilization is changing the climate of the planet it's pushed us into a mass extinction event um, we've got huge rapid species decline a collapse in the diversity of life on earth civilization from the outside looks like an imperial project that turns nature into human culture um, it looks like a very negative thing indeed uh, and then we can start to if we want to have the debates about how this, how fragile or, or otherwise this civilization is anyway its dependence on um, its dependence on fossil fuels and other limited resources and uh, the various economic and political structures that sustain it our challenge with uncivilization and with dark mountain generally is not to make a sort of fixed polemical point about civilization being a bad or good thing it's not to hold up a manifesto politically speaking and to say you know this thing is bad for this reason must be destroyed or this is a particular position that everybody should cleave to, it's to get writers and artists to a position where they start asking serious questions about the way that we look at the world we are living in. Yes, now, of course, and you highlight in the manifesto that so much stays the same from one day to the next in our lives, certainly the lives of those living in the developed industrialised world, that this disguises um, how fragile the fabric of civilization is. And you also point out not only that, but the speed with which it can unravel. And we see that, we get little glimpses of that when we see more sort of contained or limited crises involving humans, you know, like Hurricane Katrina, for example, any of these natural events, we see how quickly the, you know, the veneer of civilization disappears. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, historically, you look at every advanced civilization that's ever existed uh, and they've all fallen apart or declined over time. Um, that's what happens. They usually resource their exhaust, uh, usually exhaust their resource base, or they resource their kind of cultural capital or whatever aspect of it. They they overreach on, uh, and they get too big and complex, and then they they start to crumble. That's 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 what happens. It's almost like a law of nature. So there's no particular reason to imagine that we're living in some exceptional time. And I think that the two the two challenges that we're talking about with Dark Mountain are, firstly, that sense of the fragility of civilization. And what that might actually mean if we took it seriously and what it might mean is that we actually are far more temporary than we think we are. And secondly, the, the enormous negative impact of this human civilization that we live in at present on the rest of nature. And those two things combined, when you take them seriously, if you force yourself to look at them seriously, they give you a very different way of looking at the world. And that's what we're trying to present as a challenge to writers, a challenge to artists, a challenge to thinkers and, and, and the many other people who've got involved in Dark Mountain. What do things start to look like when you take a very, very different perspective of the way that you're living? Yeah, as you point out, I mean, historically, there are many examples of what you're discussing from Sumer, Greece, Egypt, Rome, these great civilizations that came and went. And 
when they were at their, their height or even when they were in, in decline and in, in all those cases, um, no one could really believe that they would disappear. There was a sort of sense of permanence. And we have that now as well, uh, a belief that, and that is, that's what it is, a belief really, um, that we're kind of it, that yes, those things went away in the past. We've learned somewhat from their mistakes. That's not going to happen again. And anyway, our civilization can't go away. You know, it just seems too monolithic and too permanent, despite the relatively short space of time that it's been in its current form. And you say again in the manifesto, you talk about belief uh, in the rightness of civilization's values, belief in the strength of the systems of law and order, belief in the currency, which which today probably the most artificial man-made aspect of all of this, and also belief in the future, which is really what, what it's all about. If we'd been having this conversation five or six or seven years ago, it would have seemed absurd to suggest that the kind of things that have happened since 2008 in the Western world and, and globally were possible. You know, this huge financial collapse, entire countries being bailed out, the euro falling apart, the American economy going into free fall, even China and India beginning to slow down. We were living in a time when we believed that um, everything was settled or, or at least was pretty settled and was was going to continue in this way. Uh, for the foreseeable future. And then we had this enormous collapse and we hit a wall. And it's been very interesting to see how people have readjusted to it, how we've kind of taken it in our stride. Um, I don't think that's over. I don't think most serious analysts think it's over. It appears to be only the first stage of something bigger that's going on. Don't quite know what it is yet, but it's certainly evidence that we're living in a very unstable system and that the stories we were telling ourselves about the end of history and all the rest of it um, were untrue. And this feeds into this bigger idea of the myth of progress, which is one of the things we talk about in the manifesto. One of the key things we focus on in Dark Mountain, because we're a network of writers and artists and and, and thinkers and, and, and that kind of uh, dissolute artiste, um, one of the things we think talk about a lot is the importance of stories. And every civilization, every culture that's ever existed has stories that it tells itself about the way the world is, about what the world is and about what its place in the world is and what our place is in the world. We're storytelling animals, human beings, and we can't survive without stories. So if you want to understand what makes a culture tick and what makes uh, a culture move in certain directions and what might be taboo in a particular culture and why, you have to look at the stories it tells itself. And it seems to me that some of the key stories that we tell ourselves uh, in, in this civilization, which is... Uh, I suppose, Western-led, post-Enlightenment, rationalist, scientific culture is this story about progress, technological and social and cultural progress, everything effectively always getting better, maybe with a few blips, but effectively getting better. Um, we tell ourselves a story about human centrality and human power over nature, as we call it, and we tell ourselves the story of our separation from the rest of life, if we even talk about the rest of life in any serious way, um, we tend to see the rest of life as a resource uh, in a material world, which is another story we tell ourselves. Now, those are ways of looking at things that justify the lives that we're living at the moment. And what's interesting as you watch civilizations change radically is that those stories come apart. They're no longer, it's no longer really possible to believe them. And I think we're at a stage in our civilization at the moment where our stories are beginning to fall apart. I think people, for example, are really having trouble believing in this myth of progress now. And I think that what the Green Movement's done over the last 40 years is to take apart the myth of human centrality and a kind of material external nature and really make people examine that. And a lot of people don't like examining it. 
but we're we're very clearly i think in a situation in which our stories aren't working and one of the things we try to do at dark mountain is to say well if, if our stories aren't working which other stories would work better and how could we tell them yeah well this is something that um uh, John Michael Greer, who's I've had on as a guest a couple of times, I know he's involved with the Dark Mountain Project, and he's talked about extensively about the myth of progress. And really, it was something extending back to certainly, you know, our generation in the early days, 1970s, 1980s, everything was inexorably getting better, so it seemed, and that we were going to be living in some kind of Jetsons type future, you know, bubble cars and trips to the moon. And if not that, at the very least, technology was going to liberate us from drudgery of day-to-day work, so many of the tasks that people don't much care for. And we're going to be spending a lot more leisure time. There will be job sharing because there wouldn't be enough work to go around. But that will be fine because we'd all be sitting in the park drinking wine and, you know, having a bit of a picnic. But it hasn't quite turned out that way. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, Looking at these old stories, I mean, I I wonder if anyone's really believed in progress since the 1970s, certainly in, in Britain and the West. If you look at the art and the stories and the uh, and the films and and the comic books of the sort of 50s and 60s, there, there very much was that kind of nuclear age optimism. And then when you have this big economic collapse and the oil shock and all the rest of it in the 70s, I wonder if it ever really picked up again. It was always in the kind of mainstream official narrative that things were always getting better. But I I wonder, I question whether most people actually ever really believed it. Um, you don't find many people now unless they're being very forced, who will really stand up and say, yeah, you know, I think everything's getting better and it's going to continue to get better and all of the problems are just blips that can be ironed out. It's just it's, it's just evidently not true. There are all these storms gathering around us and we're kind of trapped in this. You know, we all grew up in this civilization. We all grew up in this life and this is who we are. We can't voluntarily step out of it very easily, if at all. We're not individually culpable or guilty of any of this stuff we're just living our lives and yet we find ourselves in this gigantic machine civilization which is taking the world apart piece by piece and it's very difficult to know what you can actually do and and one of the questions we come to again and again with the people in dark mountain is you know what can you do what can you do um, to actually live through that and to talk about it intelligently and to do something about it and to halt as much of the destruction as possible. And the, and the kind of wider question there is, what does it mean to live in these times in which just being alive in this 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 culture makes you part of this, this enormous thing, which is kind of spiraling around the world, turning nature into money. And it's, um, it's not a question that has any easy answers. And I think this is just an age with no easy answers in it at all. The glib progressive narrative is just not working anymore, but there's nothing obviously simple and comforting to replace it either so we find ourselves in this very kind of uncertain moment um you know which maybe is a useful thing in the long term but is kind of um, a strange one to try and live through that's one thing to begin to face this and contemplate the you know how our futures individual futures might be different to what maybe we thought of even as you said a decade ago i find in my personal experience i'm not a father but some of my you know, closest friends have children. And I find this to be particularly difficult for them psychologically. They can contemplate it themselves. They, even if they might not admit it openly, deep down they do get it. But I had some interesting conversations recently with a couple of, you know, long-term close friends. And I've been speaking about some of the things that you guys are concerned with to, you know, to them for a long time. And it's only recently that, that I've seen some 
chinks of light there. And one of them said to me, basically, he said, you know, all this shit you're always talking about. I think you're right. And that was <laughs> that was quite a big thing. Always for nice me. to hear, isn't it? It was quite, it was quite a big thing for me because, you know, he's got he's got four kids and he loves them dearly. You know, being a father has been the making of him. And I could see that just in his eyes. I could see this. Yeah. You know, and he's a great believer in the in, in progress and, uh, you know, material well-being spreading to the world that's what he would like to see everyone in the world you know to have a fridge and a car and a semi-detached house and you know that's one vision and my other friend he said he's in a similar position and he said his words were i I think we went through a little purple patch there and where everything was great and i I don't think it's coming back and that Mm. phrase purple patch was just you could almost sum that up as you know either since the industrial revolution or maybe just put call the 20th century that you know despite all the mayhem and destruction of the 20th century you could look upon it as a purple patch it, it, depending on your perspective and i think that's the whole idea behind dark mountain isn't it we can look at this and go oh my good lord it's all over or we can say okay it's changing so we have to change well yeah i mean we have to adapt don't we just as people have to adapt throughout history say what you like about humans but they're very adaptable um yeah it's it's interesting this you know i mean i'm i'm a father as well i have two young children and so this kind of um this stuff this discussion about the future and and what may or may not be collapsing or declining it's not an intellectual exercise in that sense it's 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 real for all of us and i think you know people who are living in in the west like we are um are pretty insulated from it really a lot of it but it doesn't you know it doesn't go away i mean the 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 economic collapse that we've seen the floods that seem to happen everywhere every year now all of this stuff i think it impinges on people at a very deep level and there's more and more people saying i don't think it's coming back now and it's very interesting to listen to the to our politicians and got to get back to normal and normal is the way we were living in the 1990s and the early 2000s uh this kind of post cold war period in the west and in the middle class parts of the rest of the world in which there was going to be constant economic growth and we were all going to become very bourgeois and urban or suburban and imitate um life in the mainstream west now you can take a view on whether you think that's a good way for the entire world to live or not but i think it's pretty clear to most people that that isn't coming back again for all sorts of economic and political reasons i mean you've got climate change you've got spiraling human populations you've got um resource crunches you've got um the fragility of the economic system you've got the extinction events and all the disruptions in the natural world that we're setting off um it's not possible i don't think to believe in this kind of stability model of progress anymore and i think yeah there are a lot of people like your friend um a lot of people who come to dark mountain from that point of view actually of saying actually i don't believe this anymore what do i do and one of the things i've found most interesting about what we've ended up doing at dark mountain which is um something that's kind of evolved it wasn't necessarily something that we planned at all um but we've become quite a wide network of people and that question what do we do what still makes sense is kind of at the heart of what we're talking about and we're not in the in we're not in the business of offering people any obvious answers to that. We're not here to say, well, you know, we need to do this. Here's the five point plan. There aren't any easy solutions on a personal level and there aren't any easy solutions on a societal level either. And you mentioned John Michael Greer. He always makes this interesting distinction between a problem and a predicament. And he says that a problem is something that you can identify and potentially solve. And a predicament is something that you find yourself in and you have to live with. And that's, a, I think, a very useful way of looking at it. 
Um, and a lot of people are, for, are are beginning to understand this predicament that we're in, but that doesn't give them uh, a sort of easy answer to it. And, you know, people often don't want to face it because it's really scary and there's no obvious way to change your life. And if you're just living the life you were brought up to live in this culture and you gradually realize that that life is destructive and probably unsustainable, it doesn't leave you with anywhere to go especially if you've got children and you're kind of invested in, in society and, you know, you need a job, you need to pay the wages and all the rest of it, pay the mortgage. What do you do? What do you do instead? It's it's really not an easy situation for anybody. So even asking those questions and even facing up to that sense that things have to change and are going to change is, is a difficult first step to make. Yeah, it does seem that for, for those people who are very practically minded and are just saying, I'm going to step outside the system and all sorts of ways that they can try and become independent, you know, whether energy or how they get, how they generate money, how they feed themselves, how their children are educated. We're thinking like, you know, in America, there's a not so much a survivalist crowd, but just people who take themselves away and doing their version, sort of the Amish lifestyle. They just want to get off grid and, you know, be as independent as possible. And they're seeing that as a way of preparing for the future they're doing what they can do and maybe some people will follow in their footsteps but on many many levels that's made incredibly difficult for us i mean it's particularly difficult here in europe due to population density and all sorts of other things and and our culture as well but the simplest little things you try to become independent quite often bureaucracy government other people get in the way and i've often thought that at the root of that there's an attempt to prevent people being seen to be doing something different because that then puts it in the minds of other people not so much even that oh they might like to follow that example but a bit like you know if someone gets up if they smell smoke in a building and they leave and then somebody else and a few more people leave and the people that are there starting to get a bit more edgy and nervous is there something we need to do here is there something wrong well i mean you you look at the way that all governments treat romany people and travelers um, I'm always very interested in looking at that and why why are travellers and gypsies persecuted so much across Europe? Why are they never allowed to stay by the roadside? Why are they never allowed to live these lives? Practically, it's not much of a threat to anyone what they're doing. It might be a bit annoying to have people camping on your land for a few weeks. But actually, I think the reality of that is that there is something threatening about nomadic peoples. Uh, and, and tied to that, there's something threatening about people living like you say, quite independent and very different lifestyles. I mean, I have a lot of friends and I know uh, I know people who have tried for absolutely years to build fairly small scale, sustainable, low impact dwellings in the countryside and have a few acres of land and grow their own food. And and the difficulties they have and the threat that local people often think that they pose is is very interesting. It's very interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm in the process of trying to do a lot of that kind of stuff myself with my family and to try and live as 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 cheaply and as uh, in an off-grid fashion and as sustainably and as independently as we can um and it's it's very interesting how <laughs> how incredibly expensive it is to live simply in britain you know i mean you, the number of people i know who would like a tiny little place and a little bit of land and to live as off-grid and as independently as possible and it's almost made impossible by the complexity of the system and the density of population and the the complexity of law and bureaucracy and all the rest of it and it's become like i say very expensive and very complicated just to live a simple life and that's kind of the trap that we find ourselves in it's you know it's impossible to escape this machine you can't escape it you can kind of minimize your attachment to it if possible try and be as independent as you can try and 
maybe live in a way that has some integrity. Um, but, you know, you, you can't escape it. It's a, it's a huge thing that we were born into. We've, we're at that stage of civilization where it's very, very complicated and top heavy. And there's no escaping its influence. You can't just move to the woods and live in a tent, as you may have been able to do a few hundred years ago. It's not it's not a feasible thing to do. And that puts, again, people in a situation where even if you can identify what the problems are, you find it very difficult, if not really impossible, to extricate yourself from them. Now, since 9-11 in particular, uh, there's just been enormous emphasis on terrorism and combating terrorism. Um or they, perhaps they should try avoid creating terrorists really in the first instance. But it's become a it's an obsession really globally, and it certainly turned attention away from environmental issues. We hear, we hear a lot about climate change and global warming, call it what you will, uh, in the media. But really, the terrorism thing is seen as like top priority, a number one. Got to take care of that first. And since the financial crash of 0708. An almost equal obsession has been with fixing, uh, you put that in air quotes, fixing the global economic system. And that, too, has steered us away from environmental concerns. And there's a great irony there in particular, because the, that most, as I referred to earlier, that most unreal human construction of all, you know, the monetary system, that may lead the way in this collapse because it, it underpins so much of what's happening with energy, the environment and ecology, and it's distorted all those as you turn them all into markets, and it's actually causing them to be pulled apart. Well, it's 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 an interesting example of how short-term always uh, triumphs over long-term, I suppose. I mean, terrorism is a real thing in the sense that, you know, we, we get attacked in this country. It doesn't affect the vast majority of people, but, you know, the government is always going to want to focus on it, uh, and the economic system is what we live or die by. And we've got ourselves into a situation where if we don't have continued economic growth, our society starts to fall apart, which is a pretty bloody difficult situation to be in. So what we call the environment, in quotes, always gets pushed to the back. Um, and we still have this attitude. We've had it as long as I can remember in this society that the environment is a kind of luxury thing. And you hear this narrative all the time, you know, environmentalists, they're just middle class romantic people who who are concerned about stuff that isn't relevant to most people. You know, most people care about jobs and, and welfare and all the rest of it. Uh, and that's true on one level because people, you know, have to live. And, and the thing that affects people most is being able to pay the bills and have somewhere to live and, and, and bring their kids up and all the rest of it. But at the most fundamental level, this thing called the environment is actually the natural world of which we're all a part. And it's far more fundamentally significant than anything else. You know, absolutely anything else, whether it's social justice or house building or economic growth or whatever you care to mention if you have got a collapsing uh, set of ecosystems if you are tearing nature apart in order to build a society that you consider to be important then you know you're doing something fundamentally unsustainable in every sense of the word so but it's we, we we're unable to see that because the system that we are operating within sees nature as this kind of externality i'm not sure there's very much you can do about that i think that the values of our system come from the kind of economy that we're running and um, whilst you've got this huge centralized corporate economy which externalizes the destruction of nature and and is obsessed with financial profit and, and needs growth in order to survive i don't think it's actually very realistic to talk about sustainability and all the rest of it and that's what we've discovered over the last 10 or 20 years there's been this huge movement by a lot of mainstream greens to get the business community involved in sustainability and create this so-called sustainable green economy. It's not really going anywhere. 
in any significant way because I don't think it's really compatible with the system that we're running. But again, what do you do about that? You can't do anything about that other than rebooting the system. And I don't think systems get rebooted voluntarily. They get rebooted when they crash. Yeah, well, that does seem to be how we've dealt with things historically, that you know we push it and push it until it's at breaking point, and then to some extent it breaks. Yeah, and, quite. And then we try and pick up the pieces, and rather than see in advance what's coming down the line and try and adapt. I mean, there was certainly a time there you referred to the 70s and, and how perhaps the optimism of the of the immediate period post the Second World War never really returned. And if you look back at the 70s and you mentioned the oil shock, there was actually quite a lot of evidence that of rising concern. I mean, I've talked about this with numerous guests about the the fiction from that time, you know, that the, the movies and a lot of the, the novels, it was it was apocalyptic, dystopian stuff. And it wasn't, you know, the year 2000 was something to be dreaded almost at that time, not something to be looked forward to. But then that kind of went away when the when Reagan became U.S. president and there was the, you know, the oil price came back down again. And it was kind of like the 1980s, as summed up perhaps in the film, Wall Street was just one huge cocaine party. <laughs> yes. And I noticed the dystopian fiction is starting to come back again. And even apocalyptic newspaper columns are popping up now. Yeah, I mean, you can look at... Um, I suppose the 80s and the 90s and the early part of the 2000s is this kind of quarter of a century of uh, of growth and abundance based on cheap oil. But again, even that is a bit mythical when you look back at it because the bubble was always going to burst. And one of the reasons it was going to burst is that the huge amount of uh, economic growth that was happening in that time was creating this this buildup of environmental destruction, climate change being the most obvious example of it and the one that seems to have caught the media imagination but it's only one of them um and i don't know climate change is a very interesting thing isn't it it's it's, it hangs over our culture like a kind of great myth and people take from it what they want to take and there's this huge movement of people of out there who are denying that it exists because if they accepted that it existed then it would blow apart their whole progressive worldview and then there's another movement of people who think it's going to be virtually apocalyptic and then there's a kind of mainstream green movement which still thinks we have time to somehow turn it all around if we have enough treaties and get enough business leaders around the table with politicians and all the rest of it and whatever you kind of read into it or take from it it's like this huge cloud hanging over this society and you can't avoid it anywhere and it's a really interesting sort of symbolic um almost archetypal thing that we all have to deal with and i wonder if there's ever been anything like that before in terms of a civilization that that knows that something enormous is happening to the natural world i mean you know it's just up until really the the second half of the 20th century every culture every civilization that's ever existed really took nature for granted because it still seemed so big and so domineering and we wanted to tame it or we wanted to conquer it or we wanted to keep it out. But there was never a sense before that nature was something that we could either destroy or turn upside down so badly that it would take us with it. I don't think certainly not on a global scale. And I don't know. I just think that living with that understanding, which we all have at some level, that understanding that we are doing some incredibly deep and damaging things to natural systems and we don't exactly know quite even what we're doing and we certainly don't know what the response will be there's something in there that's almost like it's almost like um being a medieval citizen imagining that you're living under the gaze of a wrathful god somehow 
this this huge thing hangs over everyone and i don't think you can really talk about the 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 kind of period that we're living through without thinking about that in some way well it's interesting regarding um climate change that uh, a lot of people may not be aware that despite all the international treaties and you know conferences and all the rest of it that carbon emissions have actually been growing exponentially this entire time that we're this entire time period we're discussing well quite yeah growing exponentially year on year higher and higher and higher and i think if you did a vox pop maybe in your local shopping center you might get some people to say oh i don't know the figures but it's probably coming down a little bit because that's basically the, the impression you would get if you half listen to the media. It's like, yeah, something's been done about it, not quite fast enough, but you know, each year it goes by, we'll get a little better at it. And that's not the case. And also the population, although that's due to stabilise, that has been growing exponentially as well. Well, I mean, this is it, isn't it? It's absolutely, absolutely epic what, we, what we're doing. I mean, you can, there's a terrific series of graphs I came across a few years back, which um, trace um, any number of different uh, impacts of humanity on the world uh, from the emission of carbons, carbon to the destruction of forests to the uh, plastics in the atmosphere to human population to economic growth and all the rest of it, it almost everything you can measure and they all follow almost exactly the same pattern which is they 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 troll along for hundreds of years fairly flat or rising gradually and then they get to about 1950 and they go upwards and it almost looks like a cliff they just they they zoom upwards and once you start to look at that stuff you think, okay, well, th- there's there's an explosion happening here. We're living in an explosion, a population explosion, uh, an explosion of our impact on on the rest of nature, an explosion of the collapse of natural systems, the urbanisation of humanity, uh, the construction of of everything you care to mention. Um, that kind of thing does not gently ease out and sort itself out in a non-harmful fashion. And I think we're just at the beginning of seeing what's really going to kick off as a result of that. Uh, and there's a huge amount of uncertainty about what it will look like, but I'm pretty convinced that most of it is uncontrollable. You know, the, the, we're not going to slow down the global economy. We're not going to stop people emitting carbon. We're not going to stop this massive construction, consumption, expansion, extravaganza that humanity seems to think it's got a right to live through. Uh, but neither are we going to be able to do it without there being enormous consequences. And I still think that we don't want to face that. We like to call people names when they say it. We like to say that they're apocalyptic or they're doom mongers or their uh i don't know luddites whatever name you fancy calling people to avoid having to to listen to what they're saying the fact is there's that there's a reckoning coming you know <laughs> we're starting to live through it and um it's you know what, what are you supposed to do about that what can you do other than do what you think is right and try and insulate yourself as best you can now one of the concerns uh, that i have in terms of a response to all this is within the political arena the rise of the demagogue uh, a sort of strongman politician for you know troubled times. You could argue that we have a sort of proto version of this in Russian Premier Vladimir Putin. Uh, fictionally, it will be someone like perhaps High Chancellor Adam Sutler in V for Vendetta. And alongside this, the rise of fundamentalist religion, also as again as a response, maybe somewhat indirectly. And these s- systems of thought tend to take no account of the earth, ironically, or our nature itself. Well, it's true. I mean, a lot of this stuff is quite culturally determined. I don't see any demagogues coming along in Britain anytime soon. We we get kind of Nigel Farage instead, who's a kind of character out of P.G. Woodhouse. Uh, but I've always the, the religion thing is interesting. I've always thought that fundamentalist Islam is is at root an anti-globalization movement, actually. 
it's very much a kind of deeply reactionary movement to turn the clock back to an imagined uh, imagined past but um it, it's interesting that none of none of the movements that arise when a collapse happens are are, are outward looking at all they're always inward looking um the last time we had a huge economic collapse we got fascism and we got state communism and, and neither of them took any serious notice of of certainly of the rest of nature even though the fascists like to play particularly the nazis anyway like to play with images of verdant forests and all the rest of it ultimately they were huge industrializing machines and and what happens when there's a, an economic collapse is that people want security and they turn to strong men and they are usually men who offer them that kind of security and that's really about putting people and their individual lives back in a position where they feel like they're in control because control is what we want as a species and control is what we want as individuals and in nature as it were always looks like a luxury in that situation and i just think we're we've got a kind of cultural crisis in the west we haven't taken any notice of the rest of nature since the enlightenment we're still stuck in this kind of cartesian vision in which animals are all machines and nature's a giant material thing we can control i don't see how we can really change that that that's what the greens have been trying to do for a long time i mean my personal view is that we need pretty urgently to take an ecocentric or an earth-centric view of the world in which human concerns are one thing that is important but by no means the only one and not necessarily the most important one that seems to me to be about the only sane way to look at the world instead of seeing us as masters of it or instead of seeing human concerns as always trumping the concerns of anything else we have to see ourselves as part of a community but it's very easy to say that and it's almost impossible to actually make it happen in 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 the way that we live in this culture there have been other cultures that did think like that and there still are other cultures that think like that in the rest of the world although they're increasingly marginal but um you can't just graft um a, a, a cultural change like that onto a society like this one i think culture springs from the economy the politics and the way that we live so uh, yeah we're, we're probably far more likely to turn to a comforting strong man than we are to start questioning our assumptions usefully i think well, if you don't see a rise of a demagogue anytime soon in the UK, perhaps you would also apply that to you know the EU, uh, those countries. Um, it'll be interesting to know what the political scene looks like in 10 years from now, 20 years from now, because with regard to consumer culture, um, which dominates the scene, and in fact, I think the phrase in the Dark Mountain Manifesto is that we are glutted but not sated with regard to consumer culture. Uh, even with an economic crisis in the nature of what we're dealing with now, the, all the political speak is about getting back on track as soon as possible. And if you turn on the radio or the television in any European country, in the UK, it's talk of growth and jobs, growth and jobs. It's like some kind of, you know, stuck record. And that's all that we, if we get those problems solved. And it seems that that's a real impasse, in, you know, in the political sphere. Well, this is the problem with creating a dependency society. What we've got in, in the industrialized world, particularly in the old countries of Europe, is that we have got a population, I include myself in this, and probably you as well, that is is not independent. It's entirely dependent on this machine, on the industrial economy to live. We can't survive without a job. We can't survive without um, the state or uh, various corporations providing for our needs in return for money or obedience. Um, we don't we're not independent communities we're not independent people Um, and so we need jobs everybody needs jobs and in order to create more jobs you need growth Uh, but in order to have growth you need to destroy the rest of nature it's not feasible that you can create a system 
uh, at the present time in which economic growth will not destroy nature. That's a fantasy, I think, even though it's put about by a lot of people. And so you find yourself in this bind. And in a country like Britain, which doesn't produce much anymore, um, the only way to get economic growth is either to inflate your house prices all the time so that no one can afford to live, or it's to encourage everyone to become consumers of things they don't need. And it's been one of the most disgusting aspects of, of my life watching what's happening to my country to see it turning into such an awful consumer culture. And it's it's interesting to have young children. We talked about children earlier. I mean, the the, the friends of, I you know, I, I have, my, my children have friends who get given iPads at the age of four and five, showered with, with plastic junk. And all of this stuff is, is what parents are sold. There's an industry to try and turn your children into consumers of the worst kind of rubbish from a very, very early age. And you have to resist it. But it's, it's it's out there just as it is for adults. Um, the only thing I would say about that, uh, to sound un, uncharacteristically optimistic for a minute, is that you know that's a quite a recent phenomenon. This this sense that everybody has to buy rubbish all the time. We have to be plugged into the latest gadget. We've got to be sitting in situations where adverts are beamed into our heads all the time. We're being propagandized, and that's only a few decades old. My grandparents did not grow up like that. My grandparents grew up with an attitude that you, you don't borrow and you don't lend and you don't get into debt and you make do and mend because that's what that generation did, the post-war generation. My parents' generation did it as well to a lesser degree. Um, and since then, since maybe the 60s, um, we've bred generations of people, uh, you know, amongst whom I'm one, where we believe that everything must be purchased uh, and we have bought into this kind of consumer monoculture. But I think that that could fall apart quite quickly, actually, because I think increasing numbers of people find it just really distasteful um, and, and really pressurizing and really difficult. And there are lots of people who would like to step off this bandwagon if they thought they could. And I think that that's the kind of thing where potentially you could get a real cultural change quite quickly. I think maybe we're starting to see to see, to see, see the beginnings of it. But of course, the drivers of that consumerism are are the the enormous companies that are running the world economy and have most of our governments in their pockets increasingly you know it's their power that's driving this drive to turn everyone in it from citizens into consumers and that's that's a related issue but i i, I wonder I, I do wonder whether people's tolerance for it will break i don't know given that yeah, that certainly is as you say a recent development but we've seen we talked about other ancient civilizations that have come and gone and they'll have had their own materialistic rampages a um, bit of a philosophical question for you. I mean, what happened to us? I don't know if you're a, much of a scholar, really, of, of of history or philosophy, but was, did something happen to us in the past? Was there some great trauma, some rupture in the collective consciousness? Was it some version of the Garden of Eden story or the Great Flood or some cosmic catastrophe? Well, I think it depends what you mean by we. I think we have to be a bit careful. Some of this stuff that's going on is a crisis of Western civilization. What we're talking about when we talk about these forces that are that are so enormously destructive at the moment, they seem so culturally and psychologically destructive of the way that we live as humans, and they're so obviously measurably destructive of the rest of nature. It's quite a it's quite a particular culture. Um, it's you know it really is Western industrialized, post enlightenment, materialist, rationalist, whatever you want to call it. That's the culture that's spreading to the world and is is doing the damage. There are there are other cultures. Certainly there have been throughout history uh, and there are now and I've spent time with some of them who have a totally different attitude to the rest of nature and, and who live in a different way and who have um, very different social structures, uh, very much 
different ways of seeing the world. I think it's important to understand that there are really a lot of different ways of seeing the world, and this one is only one of them. Even though we like to believe that it's the one that everyone else will inevitably end up buying into, I really don't think it is because I don't think it works. So I think it's more of a case of we got into a particular cultural model in the West at a time when we also discovered huge, huge reserves of fossil fuels, which through the use of an increasingly advanced technology, we decided that we could burn and turn into incredibly advanced machinery, which to many of us is very attractive. Here we are talking on computers. You know, this is exciting stuff in lots of ways. And we've just got to a point where it's got completely out of control. And it doesn't take too much time for generation after generation to become cut off from where we actually were. You know, we're at a point now in Britain where most people don't know how to identify different types of tree. They couldn't walk down the, uh, a country lane and work out what to eat from the hedgerows. They don't really know where food comes from. It's only taken us a few generations to get to that point. Um, and it's just been so fast that we've, we've cut ourselves off very quickly from the past. But, um, you know, I mean, if you look at, if you look at prehistory, if you look at the, um, uh, the, the Cro-Magnon culture of, of Europe, for example, people, it would appear, were living effectively the same life for around 20,000 years according to what the cave paintings and the archaeology seem to show. People were living in a, a sort of nomadic hunting and gathering culture with more or less the same level of of, uh, of, of creativity and productivity for, for 20,000 years. And, and, and they managed to do that without destroying themselves or or what they were living from. So it's, I don't know, it's, it's tempting sometimes, isn't it, to think humanity is a kind of virus. But I, I think another way to look at it is that this way of living is a virus and it has been demonstrably possible for humans to live in other ways so our question now has to be what other ways could we be living as this thing starts to fall apart yeah we spoke earlier about the importance of meaning and of, of stories and in terms of dark mountain project as a response uh, to our predicament you speak of the last taboo of ecocide and basically we that's what we've been discussing all along here is this idea that people need to come to terms with and your position is that only artists can do this and you also talk about how artists and you know, writers poets whatever form that takes had a greater sort of importance in society in in centuries and cultures gone by they were very you know had a really key contribution to make yeah i think that's true i think if there was one sentence in the manifesto that i'd rewrite in retrospect it was probably that one about how only artists can challenge this way of being i don't think that's quite right um, but i certainly think that artists and writers and poets and and creative people have a really important role to play and it's a much uh, more important role than society tends to accord them um, we've got to a point where we see art as a kind of form of entertainment and that's all it is, you know, novels and stories and TV shows and plays and music, and whatever. It's something that we do in our spare time when we're not doing the serious business of working. Uh, whereas with most other cultures in the past, um, uh, the poet, the storyteller, um, the, the playwright, the, the, the jester, the actor, all of these people have been treated with uh, a mixture of respect and sometimes even reverence. Um, and there have been cultures where you know, the poet was considered to be a wiser person than the king. And there have been cultures where um, artists and storytellers and, uh, and creative folk, if you like, were absolutely at the center of uh, guiding the direction of a culture. And um, whereas now 
as I say, art is relegated to the sidelines as a piece of entertainment, which can hopefully be commercialized. And one of the things we try to do with Dark Mountain is um, is precisely to restate that role, to, re, to, to reinforce that role of the artist in, in the broadest sense of that word as being someone who has something really important to do. Because if we believe that every culture is built on stories and if we believe that we are telling the wrong story and that's one of the root causes of the crisis we're living through, then different stories need to be told. And it's storytellers who need to tell them. And those storytellers may be musicians or they may be painters or they may be novelists or they may be essayists or they may be philosophers. They could be any 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 category that fits into that broad word artists. But it's necessary, I think, to really engage with this stuff. And and as I say, going back to the beginning, we didn't see much of that happening, certainly in the mainstream when we started Dark Mountain, which is why we wanted to see what we could do on that score. Beyond the writing and the discourse, I mean, where would Uncivilization as a as a new way of thinking, a project, whatever, where does it lead us? You know, what does it demand? And, you know, if we can make it, what changes, what stays? You know, what does the future look like? Is this, uh, we're facing multiple crises, but I mean, 200 years from now, the world manifestly cannot be the same as it is now, but it just seems very difficult for us to to think on those sorts of, of time scales. And maybe these step changes are just going to be forced on us and our generation will accept, you know, a couple of fundamental changes and our children and their their children and each, you know, it'll be a step down process with each each society accepting changes. And maybe then if we if we make it, whatever that looks like, the world will be radically different, but we just didn't get there overnight. Yeah, I think that's quite likely. Um, I always like to furiously resist any invitations to predict the future. I think that's probably uh, a wise position. Um, yeah, look, I mean, all I would say is that obviously we're living in an unsustainable world. I know that's a much overused word, but it's not culturally sustainable. It's not economically sustainable. It's certainly not ecologically sustainable. It's probably not psychologically sustainable either. I just think we're reaching breaking points, really, in, in all sorts of ways. And, and yes, I imagine we'll probably have a kind of stepped um, stepped collapse, a stepped change. It would be nice to think, wouldn't it, that the world would be much better in 200 years' time? Who knows? Um, but certainly I think that when people look back, um, one of the things we wanted to do with Dark Mountain, and I think it's one of the phrases maybe that we even use in the manifesto, is that we want to try and produce writing and art that won't won't look irrelevant when people look back in 50 years time because i have a sense that a lot of the novels and the poetry and the rest of it and the, the visual art that's being produced in in this culture today is just going to look irrelevant in half a century or a century's time and people look back knowing what they know and knowing what we knew about the state of the world beyond our, our kind of doorsteps the fact that people are still writing uh, and producing art that it, that's so small and so focused on our own kind of petty domestic concerns when we've got all this big stuff going on that we need to somehow re-engage in i think that um i think that's going to look pretty strange so one of the things as i say that we try to do is is to redress that balance well paul in closing perhaps you'd like to share with listeners if they want to engage with dark mountain uh details of the website know you've got your own website and at dark mountain there's all sorts of publications and resources available there and also you've you organize um, activities and events i know certainly you've got the fourth uncivilization festival coming out coming up in august so just tell listeners about that and anything else you'd like to share 
Well, um, we produce uh, an anthology every year of uncivilised writing. It's a 300-page book. It's a hardback book. It's beautifully produced and it's full of essays and poetry and stories and art and other uncategorizable things. Um, from next year, we're going to start doing that biannually instead of annually. Um, and we're actually we're actually currently launching a, a, a subscription system whereby people can sign up and support the project and uh, and receive those books. So um, that's something that people may want to be interested in. Um, we've been running a festival for the last four years. We're actually running our last centralised festival this year in August in Hampshire. Um, and that's uh, going to be full of musicians and writers and poets and speakers and all sorts of mysterious happenings in the woods. Um, we run other things as well. We have we have writing workshops and we have book launches and musical evenings and all sorts of gatherings around the world. People have set up their own dark mountain groups. There are 20 or 30 of them around the world in various different places and all sorts of events and, and happenings are springing up around the world. So uh, probably the best way for people to get involved is to go and visit our website which is dark-mountain.net or you can just google dark mountain project and all of the stuff is on there about what we do um we're always looking for writing we're always looking for ideas we're always looking for people who have something to offer and we we, we like people to get in touch because what this is really about is building a wide network of people who who want to respond to this challenge so yes it would be terrific if people felt after having heard this that they might want to look further into what we do Excellent. Well, Paul, thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you very much. Well, folks, once again, that is it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website, LegalizeFreedom.com. That's Legalize-Freedom.com. And there you'll find an archive of programs on many equally interesting and important topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com. <laughs>